Welcome to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast. My name is Talea Dendi. I'm an 11-year cancer thriver, cancer doula, and owner of On the Other Side. I use my experience to help others get on the other side of cancer. Gaps between the guidance, emotional support, and education that are needed and what one receives can be huge. This podcast fills those gaps by sharing stories, resources, and information about all things related to cancer and wellness. I interview guests from all walks of life who are living with cancer, caregivers, and those who are thriving on the other side. Also, I talk with organizations, healthcare professionals, and experts in the health and wellness spaces who offer complimentary and integrative care. Join me. We are in this together. Disclaimer, the purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. The podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. It is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professionals and is not intended for the use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests who speak in a podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conditions conclusions. Neither Talea Dendi, Navigating Cancer Together, On the Other Side, LLC, nor any of its affiliates endorses, supports, or opposes any treatment option or other matter discussed in a podcast. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy on a podcast should not be construed as an endorsement. Hello, everyone. This is Talea Dendi from OnTheOtherSide.life, and you're listening to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast, the show that has something for everyone facing cancer. Why? Because everyone is different, with different needs, beliefs, and perspectives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. I encourage you to open your minds and your hearts. Today, our very special guest is Howard Brown. Howard is an author, Silicon Valley entrepreneur, interfaith peacemaker, two-time stage four cancer survivor, and healthcare advocate. For more than three decades, Howard's business innovations, leadership principles, mentoring, and his resilience in beating cancer against long odds have made him sought-after speaker and consultant for businesses, nonprofits, congregations, and community groups. In his business career, Howard was a pioneer in helping launch a series of technology startups before he co-founded two social networks that were the first to connect religious communities around the world. He served his alma mater, Babson College, ranked by U.S. News as the nation's top college for entrepreneurship as a trustee and president of Babson's Worldwide Alumni Network. His hard-earned wisdom about resilience after beating cancer twice has led him to become a nationally known patient advocate and cancer whisperer. To many families, visit Howard at ShiningBrightly.com to learn more about his ongoing work and connect with him. Through that website, you will also find resources to help you shine brightly in your own corner of the world. Howard, his wife, Lisa, and daughter, Emily, currently reside in Michigan. Howard, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome. Talia, I am thrilled to be with you. It's so nice to have met you and love to talk to you and your audience. 
Thank you, Howard. So nice to have met you as well. As I mentioned in your bio, in 1989, at the tender age of 23, you were a young professional just starting your career when you were through a major curveball. Please tell us about your first cancer diagnosis, which was stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma with less than six months to live. I will tell you that it started with a little red mark on my cheekbone near my left ear. I was driving to a new job in Dayton, Ohio from Boston. I got out of the car at a gas stop and I actually used a payphone. It was 1989, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I used a payphone. I called my mom and dad and I said, I'm very close with my parents. And I ended up just saying, I think I got you know a little bite. Forgot about it. I got up the next morning. I made it to Dayton, Ohio. And I was starting a new job. So I was pretty consumed. My mom would call me. This is landlines. So she would either call me at the office. I didn't have a phone in my apartment yet. So she'd call me at my office and she'd say, how is that little red bump? And I was like, it's there. To others, I would make excuses. Ah, I played basketball, I get hit or at the gym or something like that. I really wasn't concerned. I was 23 and carefree and into my new job and I was getting ready to start to travel. But this thing was getting bigger and I wear glasses at the time and my glasses were starting not to fit. So as it would have it, my mom came out a couple of weeks into the new job to set me up because having things like sheets, silverware, <laughs> plates is a good thing for a bachelor at 23, but I didn't have any of that stuff and wait for the phone guy to install a landline. So she came up and the minute I picked her up at the Dayton airport, she was just, there's something on your cheek. We got to get it checked out. And I was like, mom, it's okay. I feel great. Don't worry about it. It turned out it was a blessing in disguise as it came out this way. And then a week later, I actually returned to Boston for a talk at the American Bankers Association about disaster recovery plans, electronic ones at that time. It was a mandate by the Federal Reserve. I gave my speech there, but it got me to home and my dad played a trick on me. We usually go do something athletic. He took me to the local community hospital. Oh. outside of Boston in the suburbs. And they said, it's a cyst. It's nothing. Take some antibiotic. You'll be fine. I went and did my speech. Everything went great. I went back home. It's four in the afternoon, but I wasn't feeling so good. He took me right back to the community hospital. And this time they actually took not one, but two biopsies. I was on my way. My dad took me to Logan airport. I was flying on to Florida and my parents were freaking out because <laughs> it course. took weeks to find out what this thing was. So I get a call. I'm traveling around. I'm back in Ohio. And they said, you got to come back. So I came back. And this time I went to my local community hospital and there weren't just one doctor. There were seven. Uh-oh. <laughs> Oh, that was, yeah. And again, a young guy, I'm an athlete. I don't know what's going on. But when they said the words, you have a 2 p.m. appointment at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, I was then thinking things weren't so good. Mm -hmm. I was a deer in the headlights. We drove the car ride 30 minutes into Dana-Farber. I'm in a suit and tie. I'm getting ready to go get on a plane that night. My mom and dad are with me. We got a lot of testing. And the first thing I remember going into Dana-Farber was that there was a lot of old people. I yes. was 23 and everybody was old to me. So what I did is I walked down the hallway to the pediatrics. The Jimmy Fund serves pediatric cancers, mostly leukemias and lymphomas. And I hung out with the kids because the kids were just <laughs> playing and they came to find me and get me. Now, the first thing, and I'll shorten this up because it's a long story, is that I went into this office, a big mahogany desk, and this uh, Dr. George Canales, who invented chemotherapy for lymphomas, amazing guy as my attending physician. And then behind him stood this Harvard fellow, Dr. Eric Rubin. My parents were slightly behind me to the left, and I'm in this chair in front of his desk. He said, young man, he says, you have T-cell, stage 4E, accelerated, means growing very fast, T-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He says, it's super aggressive. We're going to try to pound it out, but we're not sure we can help. We can solve this for you. Yes. You're relatively young, and we're going to go for it. 
I heard blah, 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 blah. I didn't hear anything. I looked up at this young doctor, probably five or seven years older than me. And I said, what's he saying? Mm -hmm. I look back, my mom is in tears. My dad is a statue and I was numb. I actually don't even remember anything that happened except for I remember leaving and just feeling despair and maybe denial. I don't know. But we went home and we called my sister, my twin, CJ, to come over for dinner and to tell her in person. Mm -hmm. All I really remember about that dinner is that I don't think we ate. I just think we cried. Mm, because in 1989, a stage four young onset diagnosis usually meant death, could mean death. We didn't know how the cards were going to play out. My dad actually went to the library and got a book on cancer. There was a library. There's no internet. There's no No cell phone. So so story is actually mostly discouraging because I failed every chemo they threw at me. I started with one therapy. They moved to the next. I kept relapsing. And I started to do lots of blood transfusion. That was so immunosuppressed that I was doing lots of red cells and platelets, some white cells, but mostly red and platelets. Thank God for the blood bank. But the first piece of good news, February, 1990, they typed my twin sister for a bone marrow transplant and she was 100% 10 for 10 HLA match. Now this is really good news. Yes. Only 25% chance of a sibling and a twin. So the rest of that winter and spring was trying to get me better. And they were trying all sorts of chemo recipes to get me to some stabilized format. May 24th, my sister at 6 a.m. went in. They extracted bone marrow from her hip bones. I was in an isolation room. Now they do things very differently nowadays. Okay. They had no idea. But that week before that, from basically May 17th on, I was blasted with chemotherapy twice a day. I would have to go over to Brigham and Women next door to Dana-Farber in an ambulance and do 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes later in the day of full body irradiation. That's harsh stuff. Now, I went through the transplant and they told me this could, when you take and harvest an organ like a kidney or a heart or something from another person or blood or bone marrow, could kill you right away. Your body will reject it. It could kill you shortly after. Or we hope and we're praying that it's going to work. Right. right. And that's all you can do. So I was in that isolation room for 34 days as they watched my immune system grow back. Now, I'm going to just want to go back to a very key point that at the beginning of this, the first day I came in to do chemotherapy, I had no idea what I was doing. I was a deer in the headlights, as I said, and my liver function test was too high. They said no chemo today. Mm -hmm. And I was devastated because I had been up all night. I was preparing for this first day. I think my family were all let down. But Dr. Eric Rubin says, you're going on a field trip. I said, huh? Why? What? He goes, Newton Wellesley Hospital has a cryogenic center. Cryo what? It's a sperm bank. I go, you just told me I'm not going to live. Why am I going there? He said, he said, more doctors and oncologist teams need to talk about preservation and fertility, but he did. I don't know why he did, but yeah. he did. And, and In 1989. Yeah. yeah. So I went and delivered a sample and didn't think about it for another decade. Wow. I just paid the bill once a year came and I just paid the bill, not thinking about it. Thank God. I'll roll it forward is that I did a clinical trial for interleukin two, grandfather of immunotherapy. It helps strengthen my immune system and my natural killer cells. And I got off that treatment in December. I did a support group called Stepping Stones. And I moved down to Florida with my buddy, David Herman, because I didn't want cold weather. Then I went on a sales trip to my corporation to Hawaii with doctor's orders. And they said, you're going to come back to work. And I moved to California. I wanted sunshine, beach and waves, just rebuild my life. Humpty Dumpty version 1.0 needed to be rebuilt <laughs> in warm weather in California. And that's where I moved. So I'll stop there for a second. I and get that, it. That is a quick summary of cancer number one. And wow. It was a quite a journey. And the rebuild process was on from there. 
I get it, Howard, wanting to be somewhere warm and just rebuilding your life. But at 23, that is a lot. Cancer is a lot for anyone at any age. But at 23, you want to be out having fun, like you starting your career. What was that like for you? Just, for example, being in a hospital for 34 days. When you don't feel good and you're tired, you sleep a lot. Sometimes they medicate you if you're anti-nausea or in pain. But I wasn't in pain. I was frustrated. Yeah. That, that's That's prison. That's what prison feels like. You can't leave that room. People have to scrub and put on gowns and masks and gloves like COVID days right now. That's what my family had to come in to visit me and doctors, anyone coming in, because I had no immune system. You just, you got to do what you got to do, right? Mm -hmm. To do it. And so at that time, that was the protocol. And 35, four days later, they opened that door and I felt like freedom and I got moved <laughs> to a different floor and I got to walk the floor. And that was the start of the process of seeing if the bone marrow would take and not only take, but destroy the malignancy in my body. And it yeah, did. So God. my twin sister is a miracle, a saint on earth. And she saved my life. What a blessing, such a blessing. Thankfully, like you said, you had your sister. And in that time, 1989, cancer treatments were not where they are today. How did this impact your mindset at that time? I know you were frustrated and that sort of thing. That's understandable. But how did you find the motivation to just keep going and not give in and say, hey, I'm going to I'm going to see this through? Over time, I built up. I was getting educated about my disease, about blood cancers. I was very collaborative with my care team and I had an amazing support network from my parents, my twin sister, family relatives, even though it was a landline and you get the busy signal. I went to my fifth year reunion and I heard people whispering, poor guy, not going to make it and all that, but I needed to rebuild. And you start to build this mindset, this resilience that you don't even know you have in you, this mental toughness that you need to get out of the dark place. And when you get in this dark place, you have to call for help and you have to have hope. And that's the keys that I used back then and the second time. I love that, Howard, ask for help. I know that can be tough for men at times to ask for help, anyone, but I know men may struggle a little bit more than women asking for help. What advice do you have for men out there right now today who may be suffering from cancer, going through treatment, but they're hesitant or afraid to ask for help because they don't want to seem weak and things like that. What advice do you have for them? So I actually put together a little bit of a discussion guide on survivorship for cancer in life. But I will tell you, isolation, it is okay to have a bad day or a bad three days or even a bad week, but you got to step outside of it. You have to push yourself to get out of bed, be grateful that you're still above ground and move forward a little bit. Take that dog out for a walk. Go get the mail. Go get an ice cream. You have to do something for yourself that moves you in a positive way and mentally, physically, emotionally, in relationship. Cancer is complex and it's overwhelming and it's no time to be macho, but there's people that don't have anyone. Be grateful if you do have a caregiver, you do have family that cares. And if you don't, you can go get that. That is available to you with navigators and social workers and there's networks, buddy systems and mentors. I will tell you that's the biggest thing is isolation because isolation brings darkness. Isolation can only make it worse. So that's the key. Don't isolate and go find or let someone else help you find that support network that you deserve. 
Great advice, Howard. You were actually diagnosed with cancer again 26 years later in 2016 at the age of 50. Unfortunately, that time it was stage three colon cancer, which became stage four metastatic cancer by 2017 with very slim chances of survival. In what ways was your response or outlook different the second time around? One step back, Talia, is that I got to live. I made five years remission. I got to live. I got my life back. I got to put Humpty Dumpty back again. My confidence was growing. My career was growing. I wasn't 135 pounds and bald. Basically got a a lottery ticket and I met my wife, Lisa. I started playing basketball again. My career was going great. I was thankful for that. And I was getting involved. I became a big brother, mentor. I was volunteering my time in the Jewish community. I was helping others. And that was the lesson that I took forward is what I can give, not what I can get. So I got my life back. Then you move forward to age 50. I didn't have any symptoms, but if I had gotten checked with a colonoscopy at age 40 or 42, we might not be on this podcast right now. Okay. I might not have had colon cancer. I might've had an earlier stage that was treatable. So my advice for folks, even coming through COVID is to go get screened for your mammogram, for your prostate, for your cardiovascular stress test, and for your colon, get screened. Go do that. Don't neglect yourself. Go get that care. So I had the colonoscopy June 4th, 2016. My wife has my hand as I wake up from anesthesia. Mm-hmm. Look up. I happen to know the doctor, Dr. Phil, everything's great. <laughs> no, Howard. It's not. I found something very high up on the right side of your colon called the cecum connecting the small and large intestine. And when I find something, it's usually bad news. And I took a piece of it. I marked it and it's going to pathology. And very quickly, I was told stage three colon cancer. And I had maybe 10 days later, I had 13 and a half inches of my colon plus margin plus lymph nodes out in what's called a hemicolectomy or a colon resection. A few weeks later, they put in a chemo port And after going to a soccer tournament with my daughter, I started chemotherapy in August of that summer. It didn't work. I failed that first line of chemotherapy called full Fox 5FU. Didn't work. It took me to get 12 cycles in till February. Unfortunately, the cancer spread out of my colon again, and I did another colon resection. It's time 10 and a half, 10 inches, I think, and margining. And then they said, we got to start to do second line chemo. And I said, you know what? I need a little break. You just beat on me. It beat me down. That's and right. Neuropathy and all these side effects that I had. We found a clinical trial here locally here in Detroit, downtown Detroit at the Carmanos Cancer Institute, and I got accepted for it. So I started down the path of a clinical trial that would not so much for colon cancer, but really it was for boosting your immune system and having your own immune system overtake it. It was a drug that would do that. I did the first two. It was like getting a shot in the arm is like a gunshot. It was a stun mm-hmm. gun. And then I went to the soccer tournament that my daughter goes to the national championships and I wasn't feeling well. I could feel things in my stomach and in my rib cage and I wasn't feeling something for a week. So finally I was complaining enough to my wife that she tattletailed on me to my oncologist. And he <laughs> called me and said, you get yourself over to the Baylor Medical Center, 45 minutes north of Dallas, right five minutes from you. And you go get checked out. I think your gallbladder is acting up. You might need emergency surgery. I went there and I did tests and very quickly they got all my tests done, but I called back that afternoon. This is on a Thursday, on a Friday, and they wouldn't tell me my results. I said, you have to, by law, tell me my results. They said, you just call your oncologist. So I called my oncologist. They didn't want to deliver the news because they didn't know me, but I was then told I was metastatic stage four, that it had spread to my liver, to my stomach lining, which is the peritoneal momentum, to my small bowel. And things were bleak. 
things were mm-hmm. bad because if you Google that 4% chance of living, you know, without any treatment three months and with a little treatment, you might get eight to 12 months. It was bad news. And he said, get home to Michigan. I said, no. I said, I have to watch the semifinals and potentially the finals of my daughter <laughs> plays soccer. Nothing that can be done over the weekend can't be done on Monday. They won the national championship. My, my little five foot four goalie and her team won the national championship. Now, I did not tell her, but she said she knew. That Monday, I came back and I went down to Carmonos. They kicked me out of this clinical trial. They confirmed that I had stage four metastatic colorectal cancer. I was alone that day. And this very experienced colorectal doctor, I asked him, I said, what are my chances? I'm 53 now. I'm very active. I play hoops. I said, do I have a chance of making it? Does anyone with this diagnosis? He said, rarely. And he walked out of the room. Oh, no. I sat in that room pretty depressed, but I knew having cancer the first time that it was time to become a Marine on a mission. So I had much more to live for. I wanted to see my daughter graduate high school. She was a freshman. So the next day I went and saw my oncology team and my wife was to my left. My twin sister who saved my life before was to my right. And oh my God, my mom was on FaceTime and it was a big cry fest because they didn't know if they could help me. Remember I had done in vitro fertilization. I had Uh, My twin sister, Miracle 1, saved my life through bone marrow transplant. Miracle 2, 11 years later, frozen sperm becomes a beautiful, healthy baby girl, Emily. Now I got to pray for another miracle because they did not know if they could save my life. So I started second line chemotherapy and we got a little bit of good news. I got regression or shrinkage. Um, And for that, I got more chemo and I started investigating. Now this is the digital times, right? We actually are now 2017 and I was doing a very deep dive on this Hail Mary surgery called cytoreduction, HIPEC, that's hot chemo in your abdomen. Oh, yes. You've heard of that? It is. Commercial. Now, the cutting part is great because they cut out my gallbladder. They cut out all the cancer, all the dead and live cancer cells. But that hot chemo piece is two hours extra surgery. They don't Mm -hmm. know if it's the right chemo agent or the right amount of time, 90 minutes. But I woke up in the ICU and I pressed the morphine button and I had, it was, it's called the mother of all surgeries. It was 12 and a half hours. Yeah, it's major. Big recovery, big recovery, even for an athletic guy like me, huge recovery. For a year, I had scar tissue. They couldn't tell if I had any areas of concern or not. I went back on mop-up chemotherapy and I was trying to rebuild. Outside of a small surgery where some cells got on my stomach muscle that they removed, I got to achieve no evidence of disease at this time. I am under surveillance. Uh And that was this September. I do checkups now twice a year with blood tests and CAT scans. And I am now putting Humpty Dumpty version two back together again. (laughs) Hallelujah. I'm so happy for you, Howard. You have been through a lot and you are definitely a miracle. And just to be able to sit here and talk with you about the major forms of cancer that you've experienced is just a blessing in itself. And it's an honor to be able to talk with you because like you said, with those types of cancer, especially the metastatic cancer, most people don't survive that. And it unfortunately is bleak. The surgery that you went through, yes, I'm very familiar with it. And it is very controversial. Some people, it really leaves them in a bad spot, but you are definitely blessed. You have so much knowledge and wisdom. Your mindset and your spirit is just amazing to me. And all of the things that you've learned along the way that you are taking to help other people. And I'm saying that because I want to segue into, and you use a little bit of it while you were just talking, the medical technology piece that played a key role in your recovery and expanding your family after cancer. So please tell us more about that and the miracles that were helped by medical technology. 
Tell us more, please. I like to say that this medical community, it's changing rapidly, which is amazing. And that's good, right? But they are still practicing medicine. They haven't got it all down yet. We we don't have cures. Now, they very quickly got out this vaccine, which was controversial. But I had vaccines as a kid for chickenpox and measles, mumps, rubella before I had to go to school or camp. But they learned a lot for this, that they can actually rapidly prototype and get things out the door. So I hope that'll continue for cancer and the different flavors of cancer. Now, they knew what they knew in 1989. The protocols changed drastically for a stem cell transplant for my bone marrow transplant. They don't isolate for that longer period of time anymore. Just different. And then to have frozen sperm <laughs> on ice for 11 years and defrost it and have my wife make eggs and inject the best swimmers in and to get a healthy baby girl, <laughs> miracle. Yeah. And now, quite frankly, you're right. I took a chance. This hot chemo is controversial. It's still for many life extending, whether at six months, a year for me now, three years, it is life extending. And that is important because every day above ground is a good day. Now, That's right. uh, there's side effects galore, but I am very happy because I am now a prominent patient survivor and national advocate for colorectal cancer and still for blood cancer too, but mostly on the colorectal cancer side. The advances they are making with something called a liquid biopsy. Mm -hmm. Liquid biopsy is called circulating tumor DNA. There are sheds of cancer in your blood system. And through a blood test, that particularly can pick up things. And it's giving people a roadmap early on diagnosis. If you get diagnosed early on, your chances of living are great. Phenomenal. Um, 16 million people living with cancer, growing to 23 million over the next five to seven years. So people are going to be living longer with the disease. Now, I'm not saying it's fun, but living is good. And it's uh, great. Allowing you to chance to have things develop. So that's one thing that I'm totally excited about is that type of blood test that can detect things much earlier on. Now that medical technology is coming with imaging. There are now imaging technologies out there that can actually give a roadmap to your standard of care. I'm probably one of the few out there that actually has his CAT scans turned into full motion video. And <laughs> I use that to my advantage to show second opinions, to show my tumor boards and to give them any advantage I can get to be able to give them an inkling of what I should be doing moving forward. Now, immunotherapy, there's drugs up Devo, Keytruda, the brand names, but these drugs right now are saving people's lives. There's yeah. very less side effects. You can go and get them every three weeks. Those immunotherapy drugs. Now, I had to actually get my tumor burden, my different KRAS and BRAF type of mutation burdens told out because that gives you the tea leaves to read the doctors and the oncologists to read the tea leaves to how to actually give you the best care. So this is all recent. This is all very recent stuff during my care. Yeah. Very new, halfway through my diagnosis. We advise people that are earlier stage to get those tumor markers taken off of a blood test or getting a tumor sample from your cancer that's removed, if it's solid tumor, and send that to the lab for analysis. Get all the most information you can get. And so go get those tumor markers. Now, I will say that we still live in the world of late stage, stage mm -hmm. four. Unfortunately, we lose many people fighting the fight. It is tough. We don't want to give up or give up the fight, but we do. And so that's why we're still practicing and we have to remain hopeful. Sharing hope is what you got to believe in. You got to believe it and you got to surround yourself with as much positivity and positivity with action as you can. So I like to say that lift yourself up, be selfish, have people <laughs> yeah. make meals for you, yeah. shakes for you, start a GoFundMe for you, do whatever you got to do to make it. You're fighting, you're in the front lines. That's the right. second thing is that when you have a chance and you feel good, go lift up others and share your light with them. And if we're all sharing this positive light and energy together, we become a force multiplier. And we cannot be stopped, whether that's a prayer network, a cheering network, it doesn't matter. You've got to rally the troops, rally the cavalry, and go in this battle with others and together. Only God knows when your time is up. 
But if God's giving you a little more time forward, use it wisely. That's right. Well said, Howard. Obviously, life has changed your priorities. Your experience with cancer has changed your priorities. How has that helped you find your purpose and find your meaning in life? Thank you for asking that question because cancer can knock you down to your core. The key, because people get knocked down all the time, job loss, divorce, illness, of course, but there's lots of reasons to get knocked down. The question is, how do you get back up again? And that's what I'm teaching people now. My job is to motivate, educate, and inspire through my story and my book and my podcast and my speeches. And I help people get back up again. That's my calling now. So I don't know if you call that ministry or preaching, but that's what I do. And to go from cancer to COVID and then have a book that tells my stories and that teach life lessons of being resilient, putting that mental toughness on and fixing what you can fix. That's my happy place right now. Besides the basketball court, I want to help others. That's what I want to do. Wonderful, Howard. And congratulations on writing your memoir, Shining Brightly. Let's talk more about that, Howard. Please tell our audience the unique way you went about researching your past for this book. I believe you did Zoom interviews. What do you hope to achieve by sharing your story? So the backstory is that my editor and dear friend, David Crum from Front Edge Publishing and ReadTheSpirit.com, their weekly magazine, he was basically taking me to breakfast to say goodbye. Oh. He thought I was going to die. And he said, do you want to leave a legacy and write a short book? I said, no, I'm daunted by that task. I'm not a good writer. He said, think about it. Go home and ask Lisa, my wife, and see what she said. And she looked at me and she was like, you're going to write a book? <laughs> I called him back a few days later and I said, David, I have one, one demand if I write a book with you. And he says, only one? I said, yeah, one. I said, I know my strengths. I'm a good speaker. I want to invite influential people, friends, family, doctors, basketball guys on Zoom. Let's record them. And then that'll be transcripts that'll become drafts to form a manuscript. He said, I got to call you back. We've never done that. He called me back and he said, we're going to do it. So we started in October of 89. He said, it's oh. going to take one year. It took three. Um, I got to walk my life back in such a different way where I got to go back to the old country where my grandparents and great grandparents were born and came to this country. I got to talk to camp counselors, mentors that I work with in my first job, old high school friends, people throughout that I felt had real influence in my life. And it was magical. Wow. What an experience to do that and reconnect with these people. And they, most of the people came on and they were like, it was fascinating because we're talking <laughs> about the good old days and the, some of the good, bad old days, but yeah. it was fantastic. And that's how I got a book done. It took three years. But each chapter talks about family and tradition and lessons learned and being a mentor and my work and moving forward through Cancer One and Cancer Two, my interfaith work and time at Babson College as a budding entrepreneur. And then my time in Silicon <laughs> Valley, my time with my startup, Planet Jewish and Circle Builder. It's people are telling me it's great read because it's very interesting. And I give homework and I give to oh, do. Wow. Yeah, what to do. I, I give lessons and say you can do this for yourself because. I want you to take action. I have discussion guides on survivorship, mentorship, and faith. And I leave the last two out of 20 or 18, I leave the last two blank for you to fill in because you got to take your own action. You've got to assess where you're at and where you're going. I can't do that for you. I can just lay it out what I did. And if you want to model me, that's great, but it, you got to create your own path and for leading your own life and surviving and going forward. I leave you with that and lots of questions to be answered yourself and lots of things to interpret and take in and move forward. Excited. It's doing really well uh, from the hard copy, the paperback, the Kindle, and I'm being asked to speak, which is amazing. And I have my podcast releasing very shortly. It's amazing. I'm different now. 
right? I'm <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, yes. different. I'm now an author, speaker, yeah. podcaster. I'm still an entrepreneur, but I'm a healthcare advocate. This is what I plan to do and move forward. I'm not really looking forward to starting up a company or going through corporate work. This is Humpty Dumpty version two of. Hey, I like Humpty Dumpty too. Oh, I love it. And Howard, I really like the fact that you leave some blank chapters in the book because I think that's really encouraging people to ask those deep questions and really focus on what do you want your quality of life to look like, which is very important. Once you've gone through something like cancer, it's important across the board, whether you've had cancer or not, but really after cancer and when you're going through it, it's important to really start to think about that as well, your quality of life. Yeah. And COVID too, or any yeah. reason knocked down, it applies yeah. across the board. It's again, where are you at and where are you going? You got to help plan a roadmap. And that blueprint is not going to just write itself. That's right. Got to write it for yourself. It can be bullet points. It can be getting to the gym more. I call it finding your happy place. I do that on the basketball court where I am stress-free and just trash talking with my boys. And <laughs> But go find your own happy place. It could be cooking, traveling. Yeah. It can be visiting with long lost friends. You define what your happy place is and go there. That's what you got to do. You can't just talk about it and think about it and write about it action. Go there. Take action. Howard, you have mentioned basketball several times throughout our conversation so far. I love basketball as well. So I have to ask, who is your favorite team? I'm from Boston. So I grew up with the Celtics. Now they're going through a little controversy right now, but I love them with their history and Mm -hmm. Bill Russell and Bob Cousy. I'm a fanatic on the Celtics and Larry Bird, that whole, and now coming through Paul Pierce and now the next generation. Uh, It's great. I love it. I love basketball. I love watching it, but I love playing it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wonderful. This old point guard learned new skills. He didn't have the shot clock or the three-pointer back in the day, but yeah. I do now. And I, even with neuropathy, peripheral neuropathy, muscle memory, I can shoot the rock. And I love it. <laughs> Wonderful, Howard. So back to your book, your yeah. book touches on four light-related truths throughout the book. What are those four truths? So I want to read them because this is the quote okay. I don't want to mess up. All right. Uh, all right. So each of us has our own special light. We shine more brightly when we share our light with others. True resiliency, the kind that is strong enough to overcome trauma or seemingly impossible odds, rests on letting the light of others in. As our light circles the world, we shall illuminate and celebrate our diversity. And that is shining brightly and how we make the world a better place. Wow. So true. Thank you, Howard, for sharing that. It really speaks to the heart. And when you have that light... Boy, you just feel like you can do anything. So thank you for sharing that. It's been a hard journey and I got to make the most of it now. And I've been given so many miracles in my life. And I need to tell people that I actually am grateful. I wake every day feeling grateful, feeling blessed and lucky. All right. Those three things every day when I get out of bed, I say a small prayer because I've been given a chance. What are you going to do with that chance? I'm not saying that the small stuff doesn't get to me. I'm not saying that I'm human. I fall down and scrape my knee all the time, but Mm -hmm. I get back, put a bandaid on it and get up to fight another day. I think that's one thing that cancer really teaches you too. I feel since I've gone through that and you may feel this way too, if I got through that, I can really get through anything. (laughs) I just have to keep showing up and don't give in, don't give up. Absolutely. There's so much we can learn from each other. Particularly proud of, I've been a big brother mentor for 30 years, a young man named Ian at age 10. And I moved to Michigan 
17 years ago. And I have to tell you, there were people that I had not actually ever heard of. We have the largest population of Arab Muslims. We have Iraqi Christians called Chaldeans. We have a huge population because of the car business with Hindu. And I have to tell you, it's a big melting pot of diversity here. And my volunteer work focuses on building bridges between those populations, African-American population, Christian population. I work with the Jewish population. And I have to tell you, that has been amazing. I've stepped out of my comfort zone and I am learning about other cultures and other traditions, other foods. I want to tell you, I have something very proud about that because that is making me a more well-rounded understanding person that I can teach to others, teach to my daughter. My wife and I do that together. And that's a legacy that's worth leaving. I agree. That is something to be proud of because sometimes when we're not familiar with different people, different cultures, we can allow fear to prevent us from trying to make those connections. So definitely the fact that you're getting out there, you're stepping outside of your comfort zone, you're connecting with all different kinds of people and bringing those people together. That is very important. That's what I choose to do. It's amazing how much you get back by just putting yourself out there and being outside of that fear and comfort zone. And majority of people are so amazing. They are. Everyone has their story to tell or share. So be willing to be open, open a part of you to do that and welcome them into your tent and they'll welcome into yours. Well said, Howard. You mentioned some amazing people such as your parents, your wife, your friends and family. Who were your caregivers that kept you uplifted? In your book, you say that caregivers are superheroes and that cancer affects the whole family. Your primary caregivers, first your mother and then your wife. Describe in raw and candid ways what it is like caring for gravely ill loved ones. Tell us how cancer impacted your family and the people that cared for you. I don't know if there's a better word than superheroes. My mom and dad, my mom was primary, taking me into all my blood transfusions. They stepped their game up and sacrificed a couple of years of keeping me better, helping me to deal with all the crap that you deal with. And my wife, we had a 15-year-old daughter, so she's got to be a mom, but she stepped her game up to deal with the finances, deal with the medical bills, deal with the treatment plans. And I wasn't thinking clearly on steroids and chemo and had to be a little selfish there, but she allowed me to do that. She stepped up to take care of that. And it's a lot. It is a mountain worth of stuff. Plus she's the main communication source out (laughs) to friends and family that always are texts now and social media and phones in the digital age. It's a little overwhelming, but everyone cares. She had to step her game up. And that is amazing because my daughter, she said something pretty pertinent to us a couple of years into this treatment. She's like, dad, no one ever asked how I'm doing. They were asking only how your dad, how's your dad? How's your dad? And I have to tell you that now that I am living, she's getting counseling. She's dealing with it. My wife's dealing with it. It's a tremendous amount of emotional, physical, financial, and relationship stress that we all go through. And that's why it extends beyond just the patient my caregiver, my parents, my sister, everybody is affected by that. And people need to realize that, especially, listen, we all got a taste of it during COVID. We all now got a taste of it. So I think that with a little more compassion, a little more empathy, a little more understanding, and now having services to help that, we can push through. But let's take a second to understand of and appreciate all that sacrifice. I do have a second set of caregiver of superheroes. And my infusion nurses, I spent a lot of time in the infusion room with my nurses when your infusions take six to eight hours to slowly infuse into you and putting a needle in your port and put that in there. So I am grateful for my doctors and nurses, but those infusion nurses are a step above breed as well. And so they become part of your team. The really important statement I'm going to make next is really pertinent is that 
cancer, fighting cancer, it's a team sport. It has to be a team sport. Living life's a team sport, but cancer needs to be a team sport. And that's the way I went about it. I believe that helped me. I believe that helped me conquer it and keep moving forward. And if we can build your team and rally the troops, as I said, I called it the Calvary, do that. That's my best piece of advice there for that. Cancer is definitely a team sport. Definitely. I'm very happy for you that you had such an incredible support team, a team period. It makes a huge difference. And I totally agree with you about the infusion nurses. Whoa, boy, they're angels. Because on those days when you're just not feeling up to it, they're the ones right there with you cheering you on saying, hey, okay, come on, you can get through this. It's just a few hours, just talking to you, trying to take your mind off of it. They do more than give you that poison, that treatment. They do more than that. And I just want people to understand how important it is to make that connection with your infusion nurses. It's important. Absolutely. And they care about you too. Many of them care. They do. Mm -hmm. And you said they are angels. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's superhero angels. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Finally, Howard, in your book, Shining Brightly, you conclude the book with sharing hope as a call to action to make the world a better place. Why is hope so essential? So I love that you asked that question because let's end with hope because you can share love, you can share hug, you can share lots of things, but hope is the currency that I used to look down and say, I can get there. It's that ray of light in darkness that I use to help me get through. And hope, hope is so valuable. It's so important. And I want to live in a hopeful state. And I want to share that with others so that they can get through whatever they're dealing with as well. So that's why when I know you, this is audio, but when I put on my shining brightly glasses, uh-huh. <laughs> okay, and I am, I, right now your listeners are going to see, I'm wearing magnetic glasses that are yeah, shining. They're shining. I want to share that light and that hope with that's what I want to do. And that's why it's in the chapter. So those stories are showing how you can live a resilient life, get through the hard times, get back up and use hope to help yourself and help others. Thank you, Howard. I receive your light. I know that people feel it through the audio of this podcast. You have shared so much, very helpful information, encouragement, hope, love. I just want to thank you so much, Howard, for your time. Before we end, I would like for you to tell the audience where they can learn more about you, the information and programs that you have to share, and also your book. Excellent. Excellent. So the best way to interact with me is at shiningbrightly.com. That's my website. And there is lots of, there's some videos, there's pictures, you'll see my family, but also there are discussion guides. You can download those discussion guides. The discussion guides are on survivorship for cancer and life. Mentorship is leadership and as well, interfaith. Why do this work? So those are the three discussion guides that are going to lead to other books, by the way, Mm a little hint. (laughs) And also you can contact me and I will send a book plate. A book plate is now an autograph sticker. So if you order your book, either through me directly or at my website, or you order it through Amazon, contact me. I will send you a custom personalized book plate sticker that you can stick in your book. And I find that fascinating. I never knew about that before. And let's interact. If you want to contact me about being a podcast guest or a speech or support your organization, I'd love to hear from you. I'm all about interaction and communication back and forth. So please contact me at shinybrightly.com. Thank you, Howard. I will share that information in the listen notes. So when this episode becomes available, that will be readily available to the listeners. Howard, again, anything else you want to share before we end today? I just want to thank you for shining brightly together. 
and Thank using you. this uh, platform to hopefully help and inform others and share my story. And I am grateful for you and your platform and your listeners as well. And hopefully I can reciprocate that and help you down the line as well, because it's all about helping each other. I agree, Howard. Thank you so much for your kind words. I have really enjoyed talking with you, Howard. I feel your light. I just want to thank you for sharing that. And again, thank you so much for joining us and for your time. Thank you. Before we end today, I would like to give a shout out to the listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share, follow, or subscribe so that you can find my podcast and listen again. That is it for this Wednesday. And until next time, let's keep navigating cancer together. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Navigating Cancer Together. I hope you enjoyed it. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you enjoyed the show, please share or tell your friends and family about it. For notes from the show and previous episodes, visit ontheotherside.life and check out the podcast section. I would love it if you joined us for the next episode. Talk to you soon.